Hi guys, Paul from the Innovation Community here. Today I'm with Antonio Acuna. Now, Antonio is a seasoned data leader for the UK government and is currently an inspirational innovation champion. So uh, great to have you with us, Antonio. Thank you for having me. Uh, just tell us a bit about yourself in a few words to start with. Oh gosh, uh, been around um, doing data for quite a while. It's always been a thing that has interested me and uh, mainly from the point of view of innovation change. Uh, you know, uh, what, what is the nature of change and how data and digital can help with that. So that's been my, my, my thing uh, for quite a while um, in government and outside. And where did your career in data really start? Oh, well, that's a difficult one. <laughs> um, it started because I started doing a project for government. My first project for government was a something called noise map in England, which was producing um, modeled maps of noise sources across the large conurbations in, the, in, in England. Um, so there was no measurement, it was just computer. And uh, of course it was like, 25, 26 different conurbations across the country. And it was rail, road, industry. So the amount of data, uh, geospatial data, uh, particularly that the project involved, it was 20 something million pounds uh, in the May, you know, just to get it done. And uh, it's about 20 contracts. So I was in charge of all of that. And that's where data became very important. So that's when I really got into, you know, the whole idea of managing it, using it, um, doing new things with it. And that's about beginnings with 2000s. Awesome. And, and how has that evolved uh, over the, you know, your whole career? Well, it's been, it's been interesting because, of course, that, that, that marked my interest in running projects that uh, brought together um, a complexity of things. So they impacted policy, they informed policy, but at the same time, they created something new, a new map, uh, a new database, a new data set uh, for, for noise values, uh, changes in, you know, we had to do about 135 uh, um, special uh, calculations for roundabouts across the UK. So... I began to look for projects in government where I could do similar things. So that marked throughout government, throughout my time in government, how I did things. So I went to do uh, a SharePoint implementation project. Um, uh, but it was about data. It was about data architecture and data structure. And then I ended up in uh, the cabinet office running Data Graph UK. And that sort of put me into the government digital services, digital by default, and so forth. And what are you up to in your current role? Well, I left, after 15 years, I left the, the public sector uh, and went into the private sector, went to a company called Parity. Um, and I am the director of commercial delivery Parity. And uh, what we have done with Parity is I came in at the time we were trying to restructure the company. So we turned the company into a data company, um, data and digital company. Um, Parity had a, an arm that was mainly recruitment for technology and he had a consultancy arm, and we brought them together with the concept that we just had three models, you know, so we have, a, you have a problem, we'll come in with the knowledge, either we find somebody to do it for you, we find somebody a manager to do it for you, or we do it for you and the risk. So in that sense, that's the world I'm doing first, the bit of helping working with my colleagues and my CEO, uh, Matthew Bayfield, uh, to create this and reshape that company, and now looking up there for clients and customers. 
So you've got your teeth sunk into, you know, the public sector and, and now working with other organizations. What's really kept your interest about working in this space for so long? If you think about the power of data, if you think about in everything we do, the mobile phones, um, the robotics uh, that we see every day, even in toys, any, anywhere you go, data is the foundation thing. One of the big things I kept fighting inside um, the public sector and I continue to talk about in the private sector is the fact that systems don't exist. They only exist because you had a data need. So any system that any company may have and they tell you, oh, we have SAP, this, that's irrelevant because you have it because you need to transact data. So the origin, the origin of all of this was data and is the one thing people pay the least attention to in, an, in, in a corporate environment and even in government. So actually breaking that concept and looking at you know, data as the sole purpose for why all these marvelous systems and all of these marvelous pieces of software and APIs and codes exist just because we have any different set data. So data is your transaction of asset and everything else is just the means by which you transact that asset. That to me has been fascinating all throughout because that unit, that quantum of knowledge, so to say, that data bit, you know, is the difference between curing cancer and not curing cancer. It's the difference between, you know, the right prevention for COVID, for example, or the right plans and not everything. So you've seen this across your whole career. How are, how do organizations foster these cultures of innovation internally to really, you know, uh, pique the interest or, 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 or use the data in the right way? It's an interesting mix because not all not all companies and not all institutions do it right. Um, one of the first things people forget is that data doesn't exist on its own. Digital doesn't exist on its own. So how people do things is the foundation of all of this. So you may have a need and that need may require you to transact data. But if you're going to change how you do it by bringing in technology, you also need to change the way people behave and the way people do things. So sometimes you would talk to people and say, oh, we have, we have it on PDF now. And you've gone from paper to PDF, fantastic. You have done nothing, you know? Have you rethought the process? What data you actually need from people? So going into a company, going into an institution and saying, before you start thinking about what you're gonna do, think in terms of what you need to change. What you need, what you need to change, and then from there talk about what technology can help you. So, you know, horse card kind of situation here, put people in front and then put the systems and the structures behind because they serve the people and the need they have for the fulfillment of a job. So putting that into context, tell me about a time that you affected change in a major organization and some of the challenges that really came with that. Oh God. Um, in the public sector, for example, it's hard to talk about one person making, you know, it, it's pretty much a team effort. Uh, but you do play parts, different parts. And I think data got your case a good example because uh, me and my team managed to influence departments to A, publish data, get data out, which wasn't happening, but also begin to talk about data structures and how they need to change the way they capture their data and how the information they have about their data. So we went about, instead of telling them you must do this, we went about showing them what would happen if they do it. So what would be the benefit to them? And we began to change the perception of behavior. So I'm not doing this because I've been told by the cabinet office I need to do this. I'm doing this because actually there is a benefit to me. So change, we put it in the way of, you know, how can we support you 
becoming better by doing this. It was slow, but we did succeed in changing a lot the perception of how data was managed and published across government departments. And you think that, uh, you know, in, in terms of government, that the way that they receive and use data is, is probably quite archaic, but it sounds like there was a degree of empowerment there. There was a tremendous empowerment. So for when we did the Data Gov UK, we had a prime ministerial letter. So the prime minister wrote to all departments or secretary of state and said, you will publish this data. You will behave this way now. So we did have the power of a prime ministerial letter behind us. And we had an amazing, um, an amazing secretary um, for the cabinet office in Francis Maud, who was very clear that this must happen. And about a year after we started uh, working on this, we of course had the government digital service being created and the big support of digital by default and the whole narrative about agile and, and, and so forth and the user needs concept. So when you put all those things together, it's the perfect storm for getting it right. And what are some of the other major successes that you've achieved over your career? Oh gosh, <laughs> that's a difficult one. As I said, um, I've been lucky that I've been working with projects uh, that have been successful in many instances. Certainly, uh, um, there was a second part to Rate of UK, which was not only did we help internally the UK, but also a lot of countries outside um, began to copy what we're doing, began to come to us and say, well, you've done it. It seems to work. What do we need to do? you know, to go in that direction. So I work with a lot of other countries um, across the world, Japan, Argentina, Mexico, Uruguay, uh, several countries in Europe, so all around uh, Malaysia about our experiences and helping them. So that, that was an, a, a sort of a side element of the UK, but it was, a, it was a very, very, very big success uh, because a lot of those countries did incorporate and absorb our learnings and our failures, whatever they were, and actually, went for a next level, next generation, and so forth. Uh, I would certainly say that the noise map in England, we did it uh, We did it for less money than it was supposed to be. And um, the structure that we built to guarantee that the process was done accurately across was actually highlighted by the European Commission as an example of how to do it. Um, so I was quite happy about that. Yeah, it looks like behind you, you've got a scratch map where you've done all the places you visited. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, what's your favorite country? Oh, that's, that, that, that's, that's an, an interesting one. In terms of beauty, I've always been taken by Japan when I went there. Um, the government of Japan invited me to go, and I still stand by the fact that it's just amazing and marvelous uh, in that sense. Um, but it is hard to say because every country I visited surprised me, literally. Latin America, Europe, and I, you know, I, I grew up in the Caribbean, and um, it still surprised me. It just you don't realize how amazing uh, those places are. But Japan certainly took the took the, the medal, uh, but maybe because it was an, I had quasi obsession with being in Japan or going to Japan. Awesome. So uh, just going back to something you said earlier uh, about the the platform side of things. Now, what effect do you think that technology will have over the next few years on the landscape? Do you think it's uh, it's going to change a lot, or do you think the actual data architecture, data governance side of things is more important right now? To be honest with you, if you look at the technology we have, even though it's, it's chasing, changing dramatically, as you say, and in ways that, you, you know, from, day, from one day to the next, you go like, really, we can do that now? We couldn't yesterday, literally. Data architecture and data structures and governance, I think, are what we need to pay attention to. 
you know, we're going to have exponential growth of technologies and every new technology will pose new challenges. But the fact is we haven't managed to use the ones we have properly. Bringing a new one is not going to make it any better. You know, automating it is not going to make it any better. You know, at the very end of the day, if you don't put some foundations that are clear and concise and good governance, you don't have to go bureaucratic, but you need to have some good understanding of what's being done with that as data asset. Then technology has a value. The problem is we chase technology, but what we feed into technology, you know, the, the raw matter that we put into it to derive things is generally bad. So we have to go with convoluted algorithms that try to predict because we don't know for sure and so forth because we didn't do the job to start with. You know, so I think we're going to have to go back. We won't be able to rely on AI and things like that to solve everything. We're going to have to start feeding some good data. I guess, you know, bias in AI is a good example. You feed it the wrong data, you know, in the wrong way, and it becomes bias, you know, racist AI, like Microsoft um, experience with that um, AI they had on, I think it was on Twitter, where it suddenly magically began to pick up the most bizarre leanings towards very <laughs> radical views. Mm. Because the data that was receiving was bad. So the AI itself is not going to do it. It cannot assess that something is subjectively wrong for the time. The foundation data needs to be good enough. Yeah. And, and uh, just tying back into the human side then, when you're going through these projects, how would you describe your leadership style? Oh, gosh. Uh, some people would describe it as horrible. Some people would describe <laughs> it as great. That's been my experience through life. Uh, you can never hit it right. I believe in multidisciplinary teams. If I hire you, I'm working with you. You have a set of skills. I have a set of skills. My job, if I am running the team, is to make sure that the obstacles in front of you are removed, that I can enable you to do what I hire you for. Otherwise, I wouldn't have hired you and do it myself. I don't know how to do it. So A, I need to trust you. I need to support you in getting it done. And I need to give you space to get it done. I just need to be very good at managing those. And that tends to be my style, you know, and I will suggest to you, I won't necessarily solve your problems, unless I have to, but I will tell you what, what you think we should do here. You may not feel comfortable, but if I can get you to a point where you say, actually, I think this would work and give you that confidence, and I will support you through that decision, I won't turn around and say, well, you told me, I was there with you, you know, but uh, I need, it's that kind of work, you know, I have people in my team because I need them, because they have the knowledge, not necessarily me at that level, so my job is to enable you and protect you and support you. That tends to be how I try to manage. I know that you said leadership and I'm talking about management, but I do believe that leadership is shown through management. I can stand up and say I'm the greatest in the world and just give you Ted style kind of talk about it. And you oh, he's so inspirational. But if, if you can't work with me, then we're not going to achieve anything great. You know what I mean? There has to be something that I'm able to do to get you to work with me. Yeah. That's a, because we do hear the dichotomy of leadership and management and they are, yeah. you know, from the same boat, but I, I do understand what you're saying. And what, what about with the projects when you're trying to um, you know, engage and communicate senior leaders, for example, with the, with the government, mm -hmm. uh, that they got the directive from senior leadership in this case. Uh, but what about those mid-level managers who maybe were a bit more resistant? I mean, generally, you have two approaches, to be honest with you. you I um, bring the full weight of the law, as I say, you know, and say, you're doing it because I say so. And I've been in a couple of circumstances where you have to do that if you're going to move forward. Uh, very rare. Um, but generally, what you do is you need to, those are the people you need to convince there's something in it for them. Okay? 
because they generally are the obstacle. That layer is generally the obstacle. If you can prove to them that this is going to make you better, this is going to support you better, then you're in. You know, and if you actually give them something they can show upwards as to their leaders as, look, I am good. Look, I'm good. we're getting this done and I'm supporting it and it's, you know, it's going to make you look good and so forth. You can break a bit of that fear because generally it's a fear of incompetence. And it's the natural feel that we all have is the famous, you know, imposter syndrome. I can't do this. I don't know what this is. Oh God, let's just keep this away from me. No, 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 no. Until you give them confidence, they can be part of it. You know, it's not going to happen. Absolutely. And what do you think the biggest mistake you made during your career was so far? Oh God, <laughs> biggest mistake I've made of my career so far. There've been a couple of instances. I'm not going to give you the details, but <laughs> but uh, where I probably stayed longer than I should have. Because sometimes you do like something so much, you want to be part of it. And it gets to a point where you've done what you needed to do. It's just more of the same and you could do more somewhere else. And I think my biggest mistakes have been not letting go when I needed to let go, if I put it that way. And there's been a few, not many, thank God, but it has been that. It has been about me not letting go when I needed to say, okay, I've done it. It's done. Great. Somebody else is in place. I'll just go and do something else. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, just moving on to, to the COVID-19 now, we're probably in our fourth month. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the impact? So, um, a crisis is always a good opportunity to change, okay? So it's always an opportunity. As terrible as it may feel, everything we've gone through, we have a true opportunity to identify things that we were doing that we didn't need to do. So one of the key things that we're facing with COVID is that everyone is having to work from home. Everyone is realizing, hang on a minute, I don't need to do that or that or that. I'm getting the job done with this. So we're leaning up the realities of what it takes to get something done. Okay, that for technology, for example, is great because A, we're finding the right place for technology, but secondly, we're beginning to conceive new ways of working together and collaborating. So things that people wouldn't have been involved in, we're doing this through Zoom, we could be sharing a whiteboard, and you know, I've done that with people that never ever in last year would have even gone there. Now they're thinking that way. Suddenly their thinking shifted to an immediacy, I can fix this right now, let's talk about it, let me show you, draw something on the tablet, draw something with the mouse. Suddenly, their mindset is different. And technology is not only enabling that, but it's gonna mean that we develop new technology that satisfies the new needs we have for COVID. It's not gonna go away tomorrow, it's not gonna go away next year, and you know it and I know it. You know, it's gonna be a slow curve. And this is going to help us actually find new technology that supports the new way of living the new normal. That's a big, big change. And I don't think people are seeing it yet. People think that we're going to go back to normal. We have radically changed by fear, logical and real fear, and by the reality of economies. Okay, I can now live in York. I can go to the Moors and get a little cottage and still do my job. For example, I don't need to be in that office. That will come with a tremendous shift in, in technology, not only in terms of what we produce, but in terms of what technology comes up to solve what problems, because our problems will be new. Yeah, the, the new problem is, is I don't need a whiteboard, I need the next, the next stage, you know. Exactly. So it's that shift, you know, we're now into the age of new problems that we never thought we would have before. 
and you touched on it there, but how has it affected your your role in organization? Because uh, you know, you mentioned that it's it's really easy to live in York and then and then go, you know, for a exactly, hike and yeah. then come back and, and do a podcast, right? Or or do an interview or yeah. you know, all this stuff can be done now. Absolutely. I mean to us, I mean we 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 apparently, you know, took it very quickly, responded very quickly, you know, sent people home. Uh, and began to just work from home. We had teams already in place. We have all this 365. So it was very easy for us to run everything, you know, and we had training for people to show them what could be done, why it's good to use it and so forth. What it affected me more than anything was in trying to understand where my customers or my potential customers may find themselves. Most of them are going to find themselves having to change radically. So I can guarantee you about 67 to 70% of all of the potential customers that Parity or any other company in the same area um, are facing is a digital transformation. They probably realize, ah, uh, we're going to have to do things in a new way. What is that new? How do you do things in a new way? They don't know probably how to. They know what they have always done. Uh, and you know, to come in and actually help them rethink that world from zero, you know, uh, as I always say, don't assume that what you're doing now is what your customers need. It is what you used to do for them, but that doesn't mean that is what they need. So getting them to think closer to that, so the services that you provide are not necessarily the services I want from you. If you get closer to what I actually want to need from you, you may have three times the money you get from me. And these are opportunities for that because if we're facing a crisis, if I'm making only 15% of what I was making, I can't afford to pivot. Yeah. Simple. And what's your, what is your top working from home tip? You know what? It's funny. I ha- the only one I can say is um, I, I noticed very quickly that a lot of people were hesitant when you kind of force the video on them because everyone's like Zane and everyone puts the video in. Actually, this is their home, especially during COVID. One thing is you and I agree. And I said, look, fine, you're going to work from home. Now it's official. Yeah. So, as you know it, you're going to set up a small office, that's fine. You've agreed that work is going to knock on your door. But with COVID, nobody agreed to that. It just happened. Everybody go home. Suddenly, we are intruding into the homes with no clarity of what's going on, with a lot of fear around. And I kept telling people, do not force them to turn the, the, you know, the computer on. They might be doing their laundry there. They might not be able to find a place to sit down that looks decent enough. They themselves, you know, may not be feeling that great and that was the main tip i have for working from home is do not push a video situation because people you know are very vulnerable to that um because it's a bit kind of alarming you know it's like you generally try to look good when you're going to meet somebody you know if you're going to have five of these calls throughout the day and you still have to make lunch because you're at work at home so you need to find time to go and make lunch, which you wouldn't have to do in the office. You're still you know, nice and prim throughout the day. Let's be honest, at home, you have to go and do lunch, put the dishes in the dishwasher, you know, if you have families, and so forth. So that's my biggest tip is careful with the psychology of it. A lot of people feel vulnerable when you put them on video. They'll do it. You can see that their, their rapport with you is lesser. And that was my first tip because the, the moment I started taking it off, the relationship and the rapport with people that I was talking to was amazing. I don't know. That's interesting. I think uh, uh, 
you'd think by now most people would be used to it, but at the same time, mm. some people are introverts and some people are extroverts. Exactly. And, and I think that it's, it's quite a, if you're giving a presentation to a team, it's, there's quite a, you know, a daunting thing to do. But do, do you have a routine for working at home or anything like uh, that? You know what? I, I, I act exactly as if I was going out of the house. I wake up, I have my normal morning routine, I take a shower, I get dressed, even though I'm not getting out. I treat it as if I was going out. And, you know, that time is that time. And at the end of it, I go, take a shower, change, and that's a different world. Because it's the same world. Where I work is where I sleep, more or less, you know. Flats are small. They're not huge. Mm. So I need to somehow create a virtual limitation in that space. So that routine of in the morning, getting ready as if I was going out, taking a shower, getting dressed, you know, dealing with my videos, dealing with my meetings and everything. And then come the time in the evening, then shut down, go take a shower, change. And the change of clothes actually symbolizes the change of modes. And then I'm in a different mental mode. That makes sense. Uh, last few questions. What's the best piece of advice that you ever received? The, that I ever received? Oh God, the best piece of advice I ever received, and I later on realized it was the best piece of advice, was stay away from fanatics. I know it sounds strange, but in the technology world, you find a lot of fanatics, um, operating systems, programming languages, methodologies, agile, waterfall, this and the other. And the moment you get, the moment you only think that way, you lose perception of everything else. Things are never black and white. Things are never one way. One methodology or programming language doesn't solve all the problems. If you cannot think in terms of a solution and only think in terms of how what I know solved this problem, then you have a you know you have a bigger issue. And most people out there, because they align themselves with methodologies, languages, frameworks, and so forth, they can only think of how what I know can solve this. And sometimes the solution is somewhere else, and you never hit it because you're not thinking that way. So that was the best advice I ever got. And I've kept myself out of being fanatic of any methodology or anything. Whatever works, whatever fixes the problem, whatever allows me to get the customers to, and the client to where it needs to be in a sustainable way so they can continue being forward, then that's what goes. And who is your favorite thought leader or author in this space? Whoa, ah, that's a difficult one. Um, thought leaders, I mean, I hate to say it because I know for a fact that he was not necessarily, I don't like him as a person, but I did love how Steve Jobs thought. I don't necessarily like him as a person. Um, not that I ever met him, but from, you know, from what I've read and other people, I have met people who work with Steve. I've been uh, lucky to have done that and the stories I heard wasn't that great, but I love the way he thought. Uh, I, I love the, the simplicity and the focus laser-like that he had to what was good, no matter what. Apple is testimony to, to that thinking. In terms of writers, um, I tend not to read much literature in this world, in this field, because you get to the point where you say, well, yeah, that's more of that. I've been reading a lot about system um, approaches, uh, you know, uh, which is quite, it's quite interesting. And I've been reading a lot about OKFs, um, you know, mainly from the Google um, side of how they implemented. Um, but uh, other than wise, I don't. I read a lot. I I have about what about a thousand seven hundred books between boxes and shelves. Uh, yeah, it's becoming a problem whenever <laughs> I try to move. Believe me, 
but um, I don't generally read those. You know, I try to read something else that grows my knowledge in areas I have no knowledge. You Smart know. approach. Uh, what are you curious about right now, Antonio? It doesn't have to be about what nope. I do for a living. <laughs> um, I'm very curious at the moment about Mayan hieroglyphics. Go figure. Been reading a lot about Mayan, Mayan script. Uh, so that's what actually is at the moment quite a thing for me. That's the first time that's come up on this podcast. So yeah, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just love language. I love linguistic. I love, um, and uh, I've always loved my, my MA dissertation was on diplomacy and semant the semantics of the, uh, the semiotics of diplomacy, the role of a diplomat as a um, replacement of the village uh, priest kind of thing. The concept of we always need a figure that connects us with the higher power kind of thing. Mm. and how that evolved and became the structures of diplomacy that we have now, uh, although less of power. And language, sem semiotics and things like that have always been my thing. And now I'm just trying to learn Mayan hieroglyphics. And just to tie it up in a nice, neat bow, what advice would you give for aspiring leaders in data? The one advice I would give from the point of view of doing the right thing is that stop thinking of technology and think of why. Why do we have that data? Why do we need that data? That's where the problem is. Data is always about somebody, meaning it's about a human. At the very end of the day, any data transaction and any data item is about a human. That's about a person in one way or another. And any problems you encounter are because of humans, okay? So the first question you need to ask is not technology, it's not any of that, is why do we have, are we capturing that piece of data? Then you look at the work, you know, the work structures, the workflows, and everything else has been built on top of that need, and then you find the problem. And it won't take you long to find it, but you need to start from there. Why do we need this? Because you're gonna match the why with what we have done. And very quickly you go, ha ha, let me tell you. Then you find that point where it all went ballistic because you hire some big contractor that decided we have a system that does this and that the whole thing went off in a different direction. That'd be my best advice is always go down to the asset and to the people. Why do we need this bit of data? Fantastic advice from Antonio Aquino. Thanks so much for joining us, Antonio. My pleasure.